you're talking about third-party studios, those just blow up even more. Internally, inside a studio, it can be a lot easier, especially a studio like Blizzard where they keep everything fairly contained to within Blizzard headquarters, and the discussions can happen very quickly. But there's a lot of ways in which those things can blow up. Welcome, everybody, to the Casually Hardcore Podcast, episode 45, a special on-site at BlizzCon edition. Uh, we've got a special guest, Callie. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you are a former Blizzard employee, Correct. and I want to just kind of turn it over to you so you can kind of explain uh, your relationship at Blizzard. You left before the big layoff, so I want to be clear about that. And uh, you're going to give us an expose on all the dirt. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we'll get into what we can. Yeah. Um, so I am a uh, former, I was a test analyst at Blizzard. I did testing. Uh, I am, I've worked on every game in the Blizzard catalog. And I also was basically responsible for the primary testing and establishing standards around bringing the third party games onto the platform in the first place. And by third party... So I'm talking about Destiny 2, I'm talking about the Call of Duties that have come onto the Blizzard launcher. Uh, those are largely in part, well, in large part due to the work that I did while I was there. So uh, you have since left uh, Blizzard and you're not necessarily Correct. seeking new employment into uh, video games. You're going Correct. to go a different direction. Correct. Um, I happen to be fortunate enough to have uh, a partner who is doing well. So I have time to figure out exactly what my next move is and uh, figure myself out. Um, and so video games, I will say, is uh, much from a financial perspective and an opportunity perspective, not exactly where I want to be at the moment. Right. But that's not from a lack of passion. It's just from an economic standpoint and the standpoint of where I would like my career to go. Um, the passion is still very much there. So speaking of passion, what out of all the Blizzard IP, you said you worked on all of them, and yeah. you even brought in third party. Like if you had to pick one, hands down, what's the what's the best IP that uh, Blizzard offers? Best IP. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's a tough one because I have a, <laughs> I have a lot of opinions about a lot of different IPs. Um, most time invested, hands down, Warcraft. Mm -hmm. um, my original love is Starcraft. That's the one that brought me into the Blizzard gaming family and the first game that I really got into. Um, I think the one that is currently, the one that I think has the most potential and I'm most excited to see where it's going happens to be Overwatch. Oh yeah, okay, all right. So we just came out of BlizzCon. Mm -hmm. I know you got a chance to watch a fair bit of it. Correct. and. Um, what are kind of your thoughts around how it went, especially in the context of like last year and all the controversy in the last year? Right. Had a lot of expectations. Um, yeah, uh, especially being one of the people that left at the beginning of the year, seeing everything. Um, I wasn't in the layoffs, uh, but I, I got out because of the fact that I saw, I had some 
reservations about what might be coming down the pipeline in terms of opportunities or where I might be able to go, which didn't necessarily, not necessarily predicting that there was going to be a lot of people let go, but seeing that the company was going into a place where uh, it did not match up where, with where I wanted to go at the time in this, the time that I wanted to do that. Um, Watching then that turn around into the layoffs, into the recent controversy, of course, uh, into esports that were closed down all of a sudden. Yeah. It was very, there was a lot of feelings going into this BlizzCon. There was a lot of things that could have happened that I, I didn't know what to expect. I was pleasantly surprised with the opening remarks. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to get too political um, on any level of it. Uh, because it's just not my style. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised by the acknowledgement in the opening remarks about how the situation was handled and how Blizzard did not really handle it properly. Right. Um, that being said, the rest of the of the opening ceremonies had some great stuff in it. I was, I'm really excited for a lot of things. I'm super, super happy that Diablo 4 is finally out there in the wild and that people, we can talk about it and that people have seen it and are, and are starting to get some, some sense of what it's going to be. Hoping it'll take a little bit of the heat off the immortal, the immortal hate that, that's sprung right. up. Well, um, let me jump in on that. Like, so sure. you, the immortal hate, that's how it, how BlizzCon is remembered for last year. Right, exactly. And obviously you were there at the time. What was the mood uh, after BlizzCon and going into the obviously so, the what led you to leave. I have a uh, very unique perspective on that because of my work around the integration of third-party titles. I also ended up with a little bit of space on the Immortal team where I was doing some things with with Immortal. Um, I was never directly on that team, but I did some work with them. Um, it was rough. It was very rough. Um, they had been hoping for better reception, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I think they had also there had been some there had been some understanding that there was going to be some backlash because this was not a game that spoke to the traditional player base of the Diablo fandom. Um, but at the same time, there was some hope in that the original player base of the Diablo fandom has grown up, much like wow, much like you know. We're now over 20 years removed from, if I remember correctly, the release of Diablo 2, we are over 20 years removed from, let alone the release of the original Diablo. Mm -hmm. And um, getting to that, that, that place, there was some hope. Uh, the game was always expected to do well in China. Yeah. yeah. That was one of the <laughs> things, is that there's plenty of these types of games that exist in that market, and... Blizzard did not want to limit itself to just that space. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's part of where that came from. Probably would have helped to put out a little something, a little bit of knowledge that something else was coming, but they didn't, and they chose not to, and that was that was a choice. And that's about the best I can say with that about that without yeah. breaking NDA. Gotcha. Does <laughs> does that mark a shift to more mobile, not only for Blizzard, but like, do you think there's a shift in the overall AAA market? So I think that there are two answers to that question. Um, there is 
the answer which speaks to the growth of the market mm-hmm. as a as an overall piece of the economy globally in which case the answer is absolutely Mm. There are going to be more mobile games. There will always be a growth in the mobile games market at this point because there's always going to be growth in the mobile market, period. As far as does that mean that we are going to see a zero-sum game where things where AAA games pull away from more traditional platforms like consoles and PC, I would say, generally speaking, not necessarily. Maybe some. I'm not going to say none at all, but there's so much available room still for those of us who love that form of gaming. And for another, it gets you a box product that you get a big boost up front as opposed to microtransactioning and having to dish it out here and mm-hmm. there and nickel and dime. And that always has a space i think i don't know until phones get to the point where they can play those games right then there's always going to be those platforms but when phones can play those games we're not going to care as much so uh you bring up microtransactions kind of the games as a service model being nickel and dime what i saw from the community tended to be that the narrative over the last year is just like blizzard activision just like ea there's been a lot of feelings of being nickel and dime as gaming goes right and that has a lot to do with the mobile right. market. Do you feel Blizzard has lost its way, or is that just a perception issue? I think it's primarily a perception issue. I'm not going to say that it's not to some degree. I wouldn't say lost its way so much as started to delve into kind of towing the line of the market okay. and what the market actually is and what the market actually needs. Uh, a big aspect around microtransactions that often gets lost in the conversation. Um, and this is where my particular perspective really can come into, into play here uh, over, say, just the average gamer. Um, those microtransactions are what keeps the game fueled. It what's, what keeps content coming, mm-hmm. free content updates coming. It's even what does keep, as much as we might hate to admit it, box product expansions coming. Mm-hmm. Things like WoW expansions. They wouldn't be able to keep putting things up in the quality, you know, regardless of your feelings on exactly whether they're good or bad changes, the amount of work that goes into them is intense. Mm-hmm. Um, it might, you know, differences of opinion happen, differences of, of opinion about how a system should be designed happen. That doesn't mean that the system didn't get a ton of work from somebody to put that into the game and to, to right. design around how it works. All of that kind of work is sustained by microtransactions. The model of putting out a $60 game or a $40 expansion every two years and expecting that to sustain a game team is pretty much dead at this point just because of the level of complexity that we expect from our games. You, you can't do it. Should games uh, rather go to like 120 or $140 as a box product? No, because then you price yourself out of a lot of players. And at that point, you know, it's a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly your player base is smaller, which means, oh, we still need microtransactions because we're not getting the upfront money (laughs) from three million sales. We're getting the upfront money from one and a half million sales. So your overall market value of the product 
I mean, those, that's a very simplistic way of looking at sure. it. But the overall market value of the product doesn't change that much. Right. And Usually it drops pretty quickly, too, right. in price. And $60 one week. Right, exactly, next. exactly. And people, and part of the reason that that's, that's possible is to get people into the game so that the microtransactions can start to become what they do. Mm-hmm. And so you can have those whales that sustain the game, especially if you're doing it from a cosmetic perspective. I mean, look at 14's primary setup for Final Fantasy XIV, mm-hmm. most of those th- the things that are available for purchase are cosmetic. Yeah. But people love it because there's so many different things available. I know I've spent my share. My partner has spent her share. We spend tons of money. We're not even like super huge into fourteen, But you show us a fat chocobo, and she's <laughs> racing to the computer. You show a Moogle... She's like trying to force the computer, like use the force to bring the computer to her so that she can get to it fast enough. And that's where microtransactions really sit, is they sustain that level of uh, develop, mm-hmm. development work that can be done. Does that define all of gaming as like a games of service, like a, that, that service model moving forward if, if we're moving away from that typical box price? Anything that... It's not a self-contained experience. Is going to need some of that, uh, to some degree, most likely. Uh, games as a service model. It's really hard to find a good setup that doesn't require some level of microtransaction. Uh, something that isn't completely self-contained, single-player experience. A good example being Outer Worlds, having mm. just come out. Um, they may not need cosmetics if they're not planning on ex- on expansions or anything like that because the product has been created it is done mm-hmm. they could there's no reason that they can't there's plenty of people who would be who would shell out money to be able to customize different aspects of the game but it's less of a need than something that is is relying on iteration and consistent additional content to the game Single player versus multiplayer uh, games have a, a much bigger development cost and impact, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's re- essentially reflected by the fact that a single player experience is a kind of can be still be a package deal, right? Still sell for sixty dollars, right? And then they can still profit. That's usually what I see people bring up. They're like, you know, this other single right. player game sold for sixty. Why is this multiplayer good? Uh, why is this multiplayer game? So is are are multiplayer games from an engineering and testing perspective that like. How much more complex would you rate it? Like, is it five times, ten times more? So, it's hard to quantify. Okay. Um, in terms of in terms of numerical value, but it's exponential, uh, unquestionably, because systems design. If you have a slightly unbalanced system, it matters a lot less when you only have a single player experience than it does you have a multiplayer experience where someone might be playing a different class and might not get that unbalanced system experience because they're playing the less powerful side of the uh, the unbalanced. Mm-hmm. So the testing work that has to go into that is it has to be constant iteration. Something's going to get unbalanced. Okay, we have to fix it. We have to tweak these numbers. Suddenly, the unbalance shifts the other way. Mm-hmm. And now it's, oh, well, now we have to bring this back up. And the question, you have to go through all those iterations and those questions of, do we bring everything up to the same level? Do we try to balance it more like a scale where one goes down, one goes up? Do we bring the top one down to the 
to that level. If we do that, does that mean that the content's too, the other content around it is too hard? Mm -hmm. All of those questions exist in much easier answers and much lower level, much lower necessities of iteration in a single player experience. Because while balance does come up as a conversation among communities in single player experiences, generally speaking, unless it's a game breaking, you use this one thing and you win or you don't <laughs> win, as long as it's not that level, then there's a little bit less focus, a little bit less intensity around unbalance. Um, whereas in a game like WoW, mm -hmm. you know, let's 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 take that as an example. The actual differential in DPS among classes is usually somewhere in the one to one point five percent range in terms of total numbers. How often do we have discussions within the WoW community about class balance and talking about one class as being down in the dumps and not showing up ever? Constantly. And I'm sure it's the same way in the Final Fantasy XIV community. Mm. Uh, I got frustrated with playing a red mage because I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't doing enough damage because I was being taxed for my ability to cast for rays. So I switched classes entirely and I'm leveling uh, a gunbreaker instead because of the fact that I got tired of feeling like I wasn't doing damage. Mm -hmm. Realistically, my numbers weren't, probably weren't that much lower right, than everybody else, but it's all relative. And if you zoom in on a graph small enough, you can always make it look like it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And then the community cares. So I want to ask you about Final Fantasy XIV then, and also within the Blizzard ecosystem, mm -hmm. because Square Enix and Blizzard have a very close relationship. Correct. Uh, a lot of people might not know that. Um, we get people telling us online that that is not true, but <laughs> regardless... Uh, I, uh, can, I can say for certain that that is... That is it exists. So what percentage of the, of the WoW development and the Blizzard team uh, are playing Final Fantasy or other games that, you know, drawing inspiration from? Uh, I would say probably... 100%. Oh, yeah? Uh, as far, at least as far as people who are actively in, involved in design mm -hmm. and development, everyone's playing games. Um, I won't say 14 in particular, right. because it's hard to say. And one of, the, uh, one of the benefits, actually, of a large dev team is having people who play different games, having people who look at different genres, prefer different genres, because you want that variety of perspective coming into it. Mm -hmm. You want a systems designer that is playing uh, Opus Magnum and... Factorio, or Factorio. Mm -hmm. um, you want a systems designer that's doing that, but you also want a systems designer that's playing FF14. Mm -hmm. You want a systems designer that is playing single player games and also doing ESO or potentially uh, Destiny 2. All these different types of games bring in different ideas. And as long as you're getting designers that are touching different genres constantly, you're actually getting better feedback than if you were just sticking within your genre. Mm -hmm. But I will say, considering that essentially WoW and FF14 are the two most prominent MMORPGs that are currently on the market, there is a lot of play, there is a lot of crossover <laughs> there in terms of designers from each that play the other. So does how does that mean that like the tone in an industry feels when something happens? Like there's been a lot of drama with Blizzard specifically this last year, but gaming is an up and down industry. Right. Does it feel differently from the inside than what 
Reddit and like the typical gamers feel? It can. Um, I think it's more expected because we see the ins and outs of it and we also tend to see it coming more. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, because of proprietary information, things like that, it's hard to see it necessarily for other companies. Like Square Enix and Blizzard do have crossover communication. It doesn't mean that everyone at Blizzard knows what's going on at Square Enix. Right. It doesn't even mean that everyone on the WoW team knows what's going on with the FF14 team. They know certain things. FF14's raid team, raid designers, raid and WoW. They play WoW. Uh, that's pretty well-known fact. Um, there are visits where they talk to the encounter team, they talk to the design teams. There is communication like that. But it doesn't you know, there's still that that sense of like, oh, we're still gonna hold this close to the chest. We're still gonna not talk about exactly what we're doing in the future. So a little bit of rivalry, a little bit of rivalry, a little bit of capitalism. To be quite honest, sure. it's it's business. That's and I think that's the difference. Is on places like Reddit in the community and things like that, it can be real easy to forget that. Yes, these are passion projects. These are art. These are things. These are entertainment experiences. That is one of the things that, as much as I have not necessarily agreed with everything that has changed after, you know, in the past year or so, that phrase that Blizzard has moved to of bringing entertainment experiences to players, it's a great phrase because it explains exactly what is really happening there. And the thing that's easy to forget, though, when you're on the outside experiencing those entertainment experiences versus creating them is that this is also a business. Mm-hmm. This is also an industry and a market and an economy. And that makes it a little bit less personal sometimes. And it makes the feedback actually sometimes, a little, you know, the intense feedback sometimes a little more personal. Not necessarily because I, you know, for myself, for example, not necessarily because I want to defend Blizzard, mm-hmm. because I would, but because from my perspective, I'm looking at it like, you have to understand that this is a business. <laughs> Some of the decisions that are going to be made are not going to be decisions that I'm going to agree with, or that you're going to agree with, or that you're going to agree with, and they might be completely different decisions among all of us just because of our particular play styles. Mm-hmm. But somebody was hired into a role to make that call as they feel best benefits their product in their market. That's no different than any other industry. It just actually touches more people in a way that is more, more passionate than a lot of industries. So yeah. you, you bring up obviously the management and the decision-making process and Blizzard is a big machine right. and they are a big organization. Um, Compare that or contrast that to that of the indie. Like, does the individual developer on Blizzard have a real impact on what's going on? Or are they just kind of just blindly following orders? Uh, That can depend on team. Um, I would never go so far as, say, blindly following orders. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is actually one of the things about Blizzard that has been most evident to me since the day I joined to the day I left and even continuing to... Uh, talk to people that I know there is that the designers and developers are all passionate people who will come up with ideas on their own and will be like hey I created this thing Mm -hmm. you know they talked about in the d4 panel how they weren't necessarily originally going to 
they were going back and forth on the idea of whether a druid was going to be mm-hmm. in the game. It's one of the first three classes we've seen, and the reason for it was that an artist was like, but I want to draw it. Yeah. And then the the game director said that as soon as they saw that artwork, they were they were sold. Mm-hmm. You know, it was going to be in the game, and now it's one of the first three classes that we we've, we've been shown. And it's amazing, <laughs> right? And so that's how this can this can happen. Yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Developers in the AAA stage can have a massive impact. There is more politics that does come into play. The contrast there is that individual developers are not expected to be as to wear as many hats and are not as as live or die by community sentiment and product as an indie developer might be. Mm-hmm. So it is a trade-off. Okay. So outside of developers, there's a lot of people involved in a game. Yes. There's, I mean, there's there's music, there's art, there's marketing, right, there's right. production. I mean, there's so much. What all affects a launch date? Because like. I honestly would have expected Ooh, Diablo more than uh, That is a... Oh, and, and, and you're talking about collaboration with another studio. Uh, that number goes up exponentially from when you're talking about an individual studio pro- pro- uh, property. You know, it's no secret Blizzard is working with NetEase on this product. Mm-hmm. Uh, that takes all of those things and exacerbates them at least double, like in the good areas, it's double. Um, and it's actually, it's important to even consider that not only do you have all those areas, but you have the back end support areas that get almost unsung all the time. Mm-hmm. You have to build data pipelines. When you're talking about building data, data pipelines from an entity run by a foreign government, you suddenly have to start thinking, okay, what data can we give them? What data can we not give them? How do we, especially when you're considering that you're talking about a Chinese market that is also looking at potentially having the game exist in a European market. Yeah. And GDPR starts to become a massive idea. Like, we can't feed you this data because in Europe it's illegal for us to give you that. Right. And there's, but, but China's asking for it. You know, NetEase is asking for it. And there's a lot of politics that comes into playing with it around that. And the people that have to fight, solve that problem are people that are typically unsung in game development because they're, they are basically general IT industry people. They're general tech in terms of what they do is not specific to games in the least. Um, but even within the actual gaming sphere, developers having to work together between companies is a huge issue when you have two different two different uh, company cultures around things like microtransactions, things like system design, things like, you know, how do you, sheer how do you deliver the content? All of those kinds of things come into play. And when you're talking about third-party studios, those just blow up even more. Internally, inside a studio, it can be a lot easier, especially a studio like Blizzard where they keep everything fairly contained to within Blizzard headquarters. And the discussions can happen very quickly, but there's a lot of ways in which those things can blow up and and take more time because you have to iterate on them. Whether it's discovering a bug that makes something not work how you need it, mm-hmm. 
or whether it's just simply this is complicated to design and it's going to take months. Could you make a call on when we, you think we would see Overwatch 2, Diablo 4? Because then being playable on the floor from a right. layman is like, well, right. then ship it. But, <laughs> but obviously um, there's... So that's that's actually something I got, that I can put a lot of uh, information <coughs> out about and specifically because something that to understand, uh, which I'm, I know we, from conversations with you two that you do understand, is that when you see demos and when you see things on the show floor, they're what we call a vertical slice. What that means is that that content in particular got focus, intense focus, because they know the systems that they already that are set in stone, and they want those systems to be able to be seen by the players. That doesn't mean that the rest of the world is built out like that. That doesn't mean that the rest of the classes are at nearly that level of design. This could be something where, you know, a class that is intended for launch for Diablo Four is not even has gone as far as the line art stage and that's it they may not have a name for it they may not have anything else for it let alone a talent system weapons all that kind of stuff so taking that taking a demo on the show floor always has to be taken with a grain of salt yeah um as far as actual indicators that are better for understanding when something might be coming look for pre-orders look for look for what the website is telling you about the product if it's starting to unveil class details if it's starting to unveil world details it's telling that overwatch 2 doesn't have a release date right now yeah mm -hmm. because that means it is not coming out in the next year undeniably it's probably not coming out in the next two years mm -hmm. None of that is, and I want to state explicitly, for the record, I have no knowledge, and I'm saying this directly to everyone watching this video, <laughs> I have no knowledge whatsoever of what the actual release date for Overwatch 2 is. I was involved in none of those discussions. I was not anywhere near that information. This is all just, I can see what's happening. I can see where we're, where we're getting that information about Overwatch 2 from. Mm -hmm. I can tell that there's just not enough out there yet to expect that this is a product that we're going to see before probably 2021 or 2022. Mm -hmm. um, Diablo 4, because of the hype around it, because of all the discussion around it, we may not have a pre-order just yet, but there's more of a vertical slice available because of the fact, and it's notable in that Diablo 4 is a new engine. Mm -hmm. Diablo or uh, Overwatch Two, obviously, same engine, just improvements. Is, is, yeah, is a hybrid engine. It's an improved version of the engine. Um, so it's notable that with what we do have from Diablo Four being in a brand new engine, that a lot of that stuff has already been solved, mm -hmm. and a lot of that stuff that you would expect to hold up a game already exists. So I would actually expect Diablo Four before Overwatch Two because of the fact that the hard parts of making Diablo 4, we can see have already been done. That's already been presented to us in a way that is functional. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. And that for a game that's coming for, at it from a perspective of a new engine like that, that is a major telling factor in where the design, of the design and development of the game actually is. Can you share how long Diablo 4 has actually been in development? I can't. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that would almost definitely be breaking NDA, and it's not something. And even if it wasn't, I'm not sure if I'd be comfortable. Okay, uh, touching on that necessarily just for. Well, the you mentioned the people working on it. You mentioned Overwatch. Um, uh, we asked our community, reached out for several questions, and one of them was asking, "Why is Overwatch a story outside of the game?" Now, in the sequel, it looks like they're actually finally bringing that in t- to the game itself. Mm-hmm. But is there a reason? So, I think a major reason why that happened that way was uh, essentially it came down to the team wanted to try something different. Um, you know, there's been talk, and I, I believe it's true that there was an, an intent for there to be a PVE aspect to Overwatch in the initial implementation, but that they felt they could make a better game if they focused on the PVP aspects that we currently see and enjoy and experience. Right. It's hard to tell a story of that depth in that realm. When you're playing pre- purely PvP, you can hide things in uh, in maps and things like that. But actually expecting people to experience that is a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this what we did get from a PvE perspective was experimental. Mm-hmm. If I'm being honest, it was probably testing the waters for what we are getting with Overwatch 2. Um, so much of the story being out of game comes from the fact that the storytelling medium for a story of this depth and and intensity allowed them to play around. It allowed the cinematics department to become a become what they are. I mean, yeah. some of those cinematics are on par with you know Disney and Pixar in terms of quality. Mm-hmm. Um, it allowed people who enjoy and and take in story through mediums of comics or videos better mm-hmm. to experience lore that way. Yeah. So it was a trade-off. It was an experiment. Are you familiar with the concept of earned media? Not entirely. So it's essentially what Chris and I do as a part of the YouTube thing is that, you know, when we look at games that present stories, mm-hmm. the ones and then the YouTube channels and things like that where right. the game doesn't necessarily just put it out on a platter for you, right. but they but it exists tend to get a lot of traction, earn media, meaning, you right. know, we fans create content right. unpaid, them, unpaid. <laughs> right. by them. Right. 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 And, uh, and so that ends up driving also more of that back into it. So like exactly. you said, with videos and comics, that allows for this other side of the, to kind of, so we were always kind of curious as to from a decision-making process, mm-hmm. like on the decision, like do a, does a company say, we're just going to let the YouTubers and the, and the streamers handle this aspect for us. So there is some of that, I, I believe, um, you know, coming from the perspective where I was more on the test analyst side, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those decisions were made in meetings. I wasn't in <laughs> going to be honest. Um, but that being said, uh, there is some of that. There is some of that idea of we're going to put this thing out there and people aren't necessarily, you know, aren't, we're not expecting an entire player base to interact with every single aspect of, of media that comes out. So we have people that come in and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes eventually directly with the team or sometimes just pick up, pick it up, and run with it, and we'll make videos. Um, there's a couple of great people that uh, Destiny Two is a big, you know, Destiny mm-hmm. Universe is a big game that I'm into. Right. There's a couple of great YouTubers that make some amazing content about the lore of Destiny and Destiny Two, mm-hmm. because it's really hard to actually fully engage with that lore mm-hmm. just from an in-game perspective. Right. Um, 
And so there are decisions that are made to keep media outside of game, expecting that there will be people that will pick up the baton and make it easier for the people who can't engage with it in that same that same fashion. So what impact do you think companies, and, and I know you've said it kind of varies company to company, and we've talked privately, like how, how does a company decide where the end of the game and where like, YouTubers and Twitch and all these things, they're not, they're not game employees. They're not paid for by the the developer typically. How do they decide how that's going to transition over as they go through the design process and the release process? Uh, Quite frankly, that is not only company to company, it's game to game, it's system to system. And I would say it's patch to patch. Uh, Finding, figuring out and predicting in particular what your community is going to look like is nearly impossible. (laughs) And I'm censoring myself there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is incredibly difficult. Okay. And so that that line is almost imperceptible. There's almost no way to know what you're really going to get out of it. Um, you can expect a little bit. Setting that line is always an experiment. It is always well setting that line with a new box product from scratch. Mm-hmm. is always an experiment. Um, that's why user research teams exist in games, in gaming uh, gaming cultures, or in gaming companies. Uh, that's the only way that you can even begin to hope to figure out where that's, that line's going to be. And so that's the kind of thing that I would really say is that like, it's kind of a non-answer, and I really, yeah. I, I always hate leaving with non-answers, but the truth of the matter is it's almost impossible to predict. Is it more possible to predict community in general? Like we talk about how certain mm-hmm. games have communities and we tend to almost stereotype them. Right. WoW players are this, 14 players are this. Even right. though there could be players that are in both, right. we know who a WoW player is. Like they're all one right. person. <laughs> and, and they're different than a Call of Duty player. How does a game development company go into either like shaping that person mm-hmm. or engaging with that person? Or uh, Well, essentially it comes down to a couple of different things. Uh, one of it, one of the major aspects is just flat out systems design. Um, you design your systems around the player that you expect to play your game. And you design, you make design choices around weapons and around how, I mean, just to use this for the shooters, for example, you make design choices around weapons and how they interact with the world and how the player interacts with the world based off of the type of player that you are expecting to touch on this. It's uh, one of the things that I think, I, you know, I keep going back to it, but it's because one of my, one of the things that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about the destiny universe was an interesting one because it took two completely different methods of communities that typically interacted with developers, with games and things like that. And it found a way to smush them together. Mm-hmm. And it had had tons of growing pains. It has had tons of different <laughs> ways in which they've done amazing things and tons of different ways in which they've done some things that didn't quite land. But you can generally expect in most other genres, if you're sticking within a, a common archetype within a genre you can expect certain things. Mm-hmm. You can expect certain types of players to want to, certain types of personalities to want to get into this. If you're talking about Call of Duty, you are expecting that you're looking for someone who is looking at, their their depth of gameplay is going to be about weapons and how they move. Their high dexterity, good 
weapon sight, good uh, reflexes, not necessarily looking for high strategy, cerebral, extra cerebral gameplay in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's still a form of intelligence and a form of cerebral gameplay, but it's much more based around tactical play than it is around strategic play. Whereas you look at MMORPGs typically, and you're looking at, say, a raiding community, polar opposite. You are not expecting, you know, like you're, you're still expecting high dexterity. You're still expecting reaction time, mm-hmm. but it's a different kind of reaction time. And you're also expecting that they are going to be thinking about these things extremely strategically and extremely cerebrally, where you may sacrifice a player just to get through a mechanic and do so intentionally. Whereas on the other side of the table, something like Call of Duty, far less likely to happen because you're far less likely to find a way to benefit from it within the style that the game is designed as the game is designed. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of predicting size of community, if you're asking around that, that's a lot easier for an existing franchise than it is for an existing franchise and frankly an existing established developer than it is for, say, someone jumping into a new a new thing. Uh, Destiny was pretty much guaranteed to succeed because the Halo series was off the charts good mm-hmm. and off the charts loved. Um, the continuation of the series is absolutely a... a comment on the developer and what the developer has been able to accomplish and hold on how they've been able to hold on to the community. Uh, game like Overwatch, while, I mean, easily expected to be wildly successful because Blizzard has a history, Blizzard has a reputation, and it was even stronger at the time. Mm-hmm. And even though Blizzard had never delved into a shooter before, people knew what Blizzard quality meant and people there are enough people that love Blizzard that you expected this giant community. And it played out. There is a giant community around Overwatch, and Blizzard has put the money in to make sure that that continues. Mm-hmm. An indie developer, it's going to be incredibly difficult to protect your audience unless you are following a really intense model. A good example of that is uh, Dauntless following in the footsteps of Monster Hunter World. They knew they would get some people because of the people that follow Monster Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, they also knew that they would get some people because specifically Monster Hunter World was very successful. Mm-hmm. But what that was going to be, even for, and frankly, Dauntless was not a small endeavor. There was a decent number. I mean, it wasn't, a, it's not a huge studio by any means. It is still what I would classify as relatively in the indie market. Mm-hmm. But it was very much. There was some community that could be guaranteed and that could be relied upon to end up in that game. Meanwhile, you pull a game like Undertale, completely out of nowhere. Yeah. No way that on the release of Undertale that it was possible to predict what the community around that game was going to become. So you've brought up, obviously, Destiny uh, quite a bit, and we're all Destiny yes. players here as well. And uh, being the primary... Uh, person i guess advocating to bring it within the battle.net launcher right having since left blizzard having since uh a what was your reaction to bungie going independent of blizzard mm-hmm. and then b what is your reaction obviously that taking it out of the Blizz, uh, battle.net right into steam uh so a couple of different things um the first answer around uh bungie breaking off 
there's a lot of internal politics around that. And Bungie, it's especially notable in that Bungie was always under Activision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bungie, the reason that they ended up on the Blizzard launcher was a contract between Activision and Blizzard. Okay. Um, that's not a secret. Like that's it's, uh, They are two technically different ent- entities as far as it comes to these sorts of things. Games that come from the Activision le- family are still considered third-party games as far as Blizzard and Blizzard's ecosystem are concerned. Okay. Um, so the politics around that, I'd have a hard time speaking to because I don't have any insight into what Activision, what's going on between Activision and, and Bungie. Obviously, there were definitely some contracts requiring certain release date types, things like that, um, that Bungie most likely did not want to be beholden to anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said... Um, it was kind of a bittersweet moment with the, with it moving off the launcher. Mm-hmm. Um, it is still the parts that I'm proud of the most are still actually uh, unaffected by that. Mm-hmm. In in that uh, by Blizzard doing that and by my team working on what we did around that, it destabilized what was essentially a monopolized market mm-hmm. at that point. Um, it destabilized Steam's stranglehold. Sure, the game went back, mm-hmm. but the sheer factor of having set up another store that could pull a title that big, that could pull the Call of Duties off of the Steam ecosystem, meant that Steam had to start revisiting policies. It probably had a huge impact. This is entirely speculation on my part. I want to put this that one out there. It probably had a huge impact on how the Epic Store ended up coming up, coming around we're probably looking at slowly moving away from these proprietary launchers for every game to more third-party style ecosystems that there may be multiple of, mm-hmm. but they're going to be competitive among each other, more likely. It's going to be slow, probably, I would assume, um, but there's success in the Epic Store. There's success in the, the small ways in which Blizzard has destabilized the Steam market. Um, but, and I say that specifically with the Blizzard launcher because Blizzard is still very, very particular about which games get on the Blizzard launcher. But Steam has had to make changes. The Epic Store now exists. Uh, you have things like Ubisoft, Origin. All those launchers are starting to evolve and shift and change Mm -hmm. twitch has started making games available through their uh, their desktop app all of these kinds of things are starting to happen and a big player in making that destabilizing move was the move of taking a high profile title like destiny 2 and moving it off of the steam infrastructure in the first place um so that part of it, I still hold so much pride over having created that capacity mm-hmm. for that market to exist now. So that feels, it feels a little bit like a chess game when you start to look at the, the big numbers, when you start to talk about players by the millions and you start to talk about the handful of companies big enough to come out with their own launcher and buy each other and partner with each other as we see EA starting to seek partnership and and all these things. Right. And as a gamer, we tend to abstract that. And so within Activision Blizzard, for example, you talk about them being separate. 
one of the common things to do is anytime anything bad happens at Blizzard, it's Activision's fault. And anytime anything good happens at Blizzard, it's it's Blizzard championing over this this terrible overlord. Like what yeah. what is that relationship from more of an inside perspective? So uh, I actually uh, I I dislike I dislike the 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 jumps there almost to a T. <laughs> um, this is one where I'm going to go out on a limb. Blizzard is capable of f- their stuff all on their own. Uh, Activision Blizzard as a system is used as a scapegoat. It is used as a boogeyman. Um, I'm not going to say that nothing has come out of there that has impacted Blizzard. But generally speaking, Blizzard has been able to make a lot of their own decisions. And that's probably the best way to put it, because for positive or negative, the decisions that have come out of Blizzard have largely been decisions made by Blizzard. And it scapegoats them, or it scapegoats Activision or Activision Blizzard to use them as the reason they're happening, because it absolves Blizzard of that decision. Um, And I'm not afraid to say that. That's one of those things, you know, as much as I've been trying to separate out the fact that I used to be at Blizzard from the answers to the questions that I've been trying to to give mm-hmm. you, um, aside from the insight that it has provided me. In this instance, I want to like I will say flat out that it is not beneficial to anybody to assume that Blizzard did not make these decisions, some of these decisions on their own. Mm-hmm. It is not allow the company to move forward to allow them to to give them slack for a poor decision that. And say that it came from Activision or it came from Activision Blizzard or anything like that. Uh, it is how you hold companies accountable. Now, that being said, community is responsible still for doing so in a way that does not endanger people and does not put people in un- feeling into a place of feeling unsafe. But it, the feedback still needs to go to Blizzard. doesn't need to go to ABK. So if you were uh, giving advice to the disenfranchised gamer who is frustrated by shifting market, you know, the, the monetization, I mean, we can, uh, whether it's Activision, EA, Ubisoft, it seems like there's always somebody to be mad at, right? right. There's somebody who's doing something that's, how would, how, what, what advice would you give to the disenfranchised gamer to, uh, to encourage them to take what specific action if they are frustrated by a particular move? So... The most important thing is to provide, if you really want feedback to get across to the people that you are trying to talk to, present it in a way that brings with it data, it brings with it points, and it brings with it an explanation, an in-depth explanation of the problem with what you're complaining about. There's this this sense that can come across with feedback, um, and I'm directing this specifically to the people watching because this, I want this to be me talking, not to you two mm. about this. Um, there's a sense that if something is wrong from my perspective, then clearly it must be clear to the devs if I complain about it, what's wrong? That's not true. They made the choice because they believe it's right. And 
The other thing to consider is that even when you make an impassioned, well-typed out, well-thought-out argument, it is possible the company is still going to make a different decision. Accept that that is an outcome that is possible. And consider rationally what other options you might have to impact that. Which does come back to the whole business thing. Money does talk. Take your money somewhere else. But when it comes to actually wanting to see change in the market, in the industry, especially if it's in a particular company, make it something that they can engage with. Don't make it something that is going to assault them. And that's where you'll get, you have a chance to get hurt. So if you could have that impact, if you could have that ear, what is one thing that you think could be improved at Blizzard, either in the way they handle a game or the way they've handled a particular issue in the last year? This is something I have never been silent about. Uh, there is far too much siloing. Okay. Uh, I believe that this is probably true in a lot of different gaming, gaming companies. Uh, but the fact is that there needs to be better communication. There needs to be better better interplay between all of the dev teams, between the dev teams and what they call it, the support teams, between you know, the IT professionals that are building the back end, that are building the, the systems on which the games run, that are, that are building the social systems, uh, which each game has to connect to, building the data systems that gather all the information and then turn around and use that information to actually do something with the game. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big things, especially within Blizzard, is that I've seen is look at the difference between how quickly Fortnite responds to things and how quickly any other game, any game in the Blizzard ecosystem responds to things. It's all data. It is all data driven. And that is a place where Blizzard has a chance and an opportunity that they have not capitalized on is that they're not using that data to adjust to the way that the market now exists and what is now capable within the market. Um, a large portion of that is because of the siloing and because of if you look at each different game, you can notice that there's specific individual things that each game has within it that they want uh, that's custom. Mm -hmm. If you can, in terms of the social experience, if you could customize or if you could uh, more more accurately homogenize the social experience, everything gets better. And it's one, that's one of the things that I was working on with the third party titles when I got, you know, before I left was establishing those rules and say, and part of what I was advocating for was let's make these rules for everyone, not just for third party coming onto the platform. Um, and then eventually I got to a point, what actually led me to leave had a lot more to do with my career path and where I wanted to go, uh, not being available to me within a timely manner, just to, to put that out there. Um, but that aspect of it was a huge frustration for me. And one of the things that was a catalyst for why I wanted to be able to move up faster than I was, mm -hmm. because I wanted to be able to impact that in a much better position at a much higher uh strata than I was. So 
over the last year, obviously, we've seen a lot of drama with Blizzard and the decisions. Obviously, this culminated in the uh, Blitzchung situation uh, tied into China and Hong Kong that um, that led into led into the this BlizzCon. I think um, when being an outsider in this case, being this is my first BlizzCon, I really appreciated uh, the message first before they showed us anything. But uh, can you speak to what your uh, thoughts are or your reaction um, to this past situation um, and, and how it relates? Because there are a lot of relationships. There's a lot of complexity to this. Right. It's not a simple black and white issue, no matter which way you look at it. I'd like right. to know your thoughts. Well, there's a lot of things that I don't want to necessarily speak to. Um, especially considering that there's a lot of political implications behind all of it. Mm -hmm. um, I myself tend to try to be fairly private around politics. Um, and if I'm being completely frank, I don't want to say anything that's going to start to get the Chinese government interested in this video. Um, but I will say that I do appreciate, I did appreciate the message from J. Allen Brack coming out saying, expressing that things could have been handled in a way that brought people together in a much more effective way. Uh, I think the message, I understand why it was made on that stage. I do wish some portion of it had come out earlier and in less, less HR style speech, less, well, an HR style speech isn't even really the right term, uh, less buzzword, in fact, infested speech, mm -hmm. um, which on the show floor or on the stage itself was not the case. Right. It was very clear. Uh, but the, every, all the reactions before that were very clearly sandbagging and couching, couched in language that was trying to be like, okay, we need to get in front of this. We need to say something, but this is all just like PR speak yeah. or, Hey, chill everything's okay when it's not right um that's probably about as far as i'm comfortable going with it this way uh my personal opinion on the politics of it are not something that i, I think i need to delve into but uh it is that is the biggest takeaway i have is that there was an opportunity to at least acknowledge earlier Mm -hmm. And I think waiting for this stage was a bit too much leaning into the PR move of having it be vocal J. Allen Brack on stage mm -hmm. instead of having a little bit of that come out beforehand and then having that speech on stage. So we usually end on a lighter note and we tend to ask guests <laughs> about, about... Who would you like to of, punch at uh, Blizzard? So we tend to ask questions about like... No one's going to know what, what, uh, <laughs> what features you like to to take with you from game to game, what features you like to bring into your current game, but since you you play a fair number of games, what is right. what is one feature that when it's implemented in a game, you wish you could just kind of put that in your pocket and then as you go through other games, you could always deploy it when it's hmm. lacking? That is a very interesting question. Thank you, that's what we do here. Um, <laughs> and well, it's, it's, it's a tough one is the reason I say it's interesting uh, because there's, you know, the, there's so many different ways in which games can implement different types of systems. The thing to me that tends to be the decider is that you need to establish within the first few minutes of a game 
what your gameplay style is going to be, what your basic gameplay style is going to be. Uh, Front-loading tutorials and things like that can often get overwhelming. I'm not necessarily saying even cold opens, but you have to give your player something. Destiny and Halo are perfect examples of this. Uh, Bungie has this, this philosophy that I actually love, which is they refer to as the five minutes of fun. Mm -hmm. Find the five minutes of fun in a game and make everything in the game an iteration on those five minutes. Uh, this is best displayed within Destiny in the way that the classes regenerate abilities and regenerate ultimates. Um, and I'm just delving into this real quick because it's an easy one mm -hmm. to explain exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, my easiest example is the uh, Woodwalker Warlocks. Um, so, you know, you've got your guns, mm -hmm. you've got your abilities, you're sitting, you're, 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 you've got a ton of enemies right in front of you. You're behind cover, you're poking out, you're popping out and shooting, you're, you're tossing your grenades, you're trying to get everything out there. You get your ultimate online and you're like, this is it. This is my chance. Boss pops up, a bunch of ads surrounding it. You sprint in, you blink over top, you shoot your Nova bomb right down on top of everything. And then as soon as you land, you get back to cover and you start that process over again. And that is incredibly fun. It makes you feel like super badass. It makes you feel like you're you're contributing, all of that sort of thing. That experience, not necessarily in the five-minute version, but that experience has to exist within a game, and it has to exist within a game early in order for me to consider it a game that's going to hold my attention and that is likely to hold the attention of multiple people. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that, what is one thing that you would prefer to no longer see used in games? Constant tutorial pop-ups. The worst offender I've seen of this in a long time is Monster Hunter World. I'm going to be completely honest. Um, it's understandable why. There are a lot of extremely complex systems. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to read three to four pages of text every ten seconds while I'm starting up in the game. I'm just going to click through it and just get out of it as quickly as I possibly can. Because Monster Hunter World does do the first thing. Mm -hmm. They give you an intro to the fun part of the game where you're beating on stuff and doing combos and, and building up meters for special abilities very quickly. Mm -hmm. But then you get, anytime you get a new system, you have pages of just flat text <coughs> that is hard to read and dense and sometimes uses lingo that you may not even be able to process without having to go to an outside source. That is the one thing that that will kill a gaming experience for me. Perfect. All right. Well, well, we're in an hour. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for making time to answer our questions. Of course. This is a really fun conversation, so yeah. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess that's going to be it for <laughs> for to game. My name is Brian. My name's Chris. My name's Kaylee. So thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Take care. Oh, uh, excuse me. Um. What's up, workforce? Chuck here, telling you, you should totally like, favorite, subscribe, share, dance, raise your hands in the air. I'm off camera. I'm off frame. I'm new at this. I'm, hey, hey, listen. You, yes. You haven't hit that subscribe button. You totally should. I recommend it. Chuck 
approved. Anyway, also, thanks to all the Patreons. You're in the corners. Whoa!